Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Um, if you just walked in, we're in a series entitled um, The Rendering. And we began last week with um, a passage of scripture that I want to revisit. The politics of our nation are torn and shredded. Uh, it's, it's a pretty intense period, but no more intense than it was in the time of Jesus Christ. Israel was constantly being invaded by one group or another because of its location. If you wanted to invade Egypt, you had to go through Israel. You wanted to invade, invade Europe from the south, you had to go through Israel. You wanted to go to the Middle East, everything flowed through. So it was constantly a political turmoil. It's in the midst of all this that Jesus was doing his work, and at one point in time, he's approached in Mark chapter 12, um, verses 13 through 17, it says they sent some Pharisees and some Herodians. These are two political parties, basically, who had conflicts with each other, but they joined together to trap Jesus, to catch him in his words. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention. They flatter him. And they say, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? It was a trick question. If you said you were to pay it, then they'd say, ah, you're a tool of Rome and a traitor. If he says, nope, don't pay it, they would have informed the Romans and he would have been killed very quickly. He knows their hypocrisy. He says, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius, a coin that was worth a day's wages, around $100 probably or so today. Let me look at it. They brought the coin. He asked them, whose image and whose inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give back to Caesar or render to Caesar that what is Caesar's and to God that what is God's. And they're amazed. We talked about this in depth last week. You can get that from the podcast. It'll be up by tomorrow because uh, we've been reviewing some things with it. Um, I want to just kind of expand on a few of the things that we made a point of last week. When we talked about tables and flags, we said that it's okay. Uh, in fact, we should have an informed opinion. And everyone can have, and we all have various opinions, whether they're political or otherwise. We should all have opinions, strong opinions. That's okay. But that as far as we're concerned, those should never overcome or overshadow the table of the Lord. A table where we gather and, and at tables we converse and we talk and we share those opinions and we share those views. But again, those opinions and views should never overshadow um, or cover up or obscure or distract. In our society today, it has become very much a thing to tear one another apart, to dehumanize, to, to denigrate. That may become an increasingly an American way, but it is not the way of Christ and it is not the way of Christians, whether they're American or any other nationality. Tomorrow we're supposed to celebrate Martin Luther King, a man who, while he had his flaws, was brilliant in his biblical depth. One of the statements he made that is a favorite of mine and has become even more so over the years is this, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state that we're not the master to direct and shape and rule, but we're also not to be the servant, to 
be directed and pushed around on those things. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority from his message, A Knock at Midnight. And so we have these views, but they should never be so, uh, above or superior to the table of the Lord. We gather for fellowship. We should always be able to welcome people and gather people in. We talked briefly a little bit about uh, zealots. Um, uh, Judas Iscariot, some of you have seen probably a movie out there called Sakari. The Sakari now has come to be a name for a cartel hitman. But it's rooted originally in the Sakari. The literal translation means uh, curved dagger or daggerman. And the original cloak and dagger, they came around in, in uh, Jesus' time. They had cloaks on, they had their daggers underneath. These were people who were very zealous for God, um, very nationalistic Jewish. And they would take a dagger out in the crowd and underneath their cloak, they would then knife anybody who they thought was um, in favor of, of Roman occupation, whether they were Roman or whether they were Jewish. They were called the Sakari. These guys predates the ninjas and the assassins as far as the original organized assassin creed and, and gang of people here. Um, Judas is named Judas Iscariot or Judas Sakari. He was probably part of this political party that was extreme to say the least. Um, he was one that would have been lent to, to a group of people that gained increasing power within Israel, so much so that within about a 30-year period or so after Jesus' execution and resurrection, they gained political authority within Israel, they rebel against Rome, and it causes a conflagration that destroys the temple. The only thing left now is the western wall of the retaining wall of the temple. It destroys all of Jerusalem. And from that point on in 70 AD, the last fortress being Masada that falls in 73 AD, the Jewish nation is no more for 2,000 years until 1948. The only nation to ever do so, and that's a very interesting note all by itself. But the end thing I want you to understand today is that the zealots, with all their zealousness for God and, and nation, caused the utter, complete destruction of Israel. Judas was one of those. And it's thought that very probably Judas, who's following Jesus for the purposes of revolution when it's not happening, that's why he betrays Jude, Jesus, um, with the hopes of triggering it off in the same way that some of these uh, um, foolish people will try to execute someone of, of another race in order to start a race war in their hopes of some type or another. This was his motive. What's interesting about this is he wasn't the only zealot that was on Jesus' team. There's also another uh, apostle named Simon the Zealot. And so you had two people who were of this extreme um, um, fringe group that ultimately causes the destruction of Israel. Judas tries to continue that dies in the process by his own hand in despair and betrays Christ, the ultimate betrayer. Simon the Zealot, literally named that, ends up actually serving Christ rather than his political ends and actually ends up giving his life for Christ in the end. Very interesting because in the team of 12 there or so, you've got people like Simon the Zealot and Judas Zachari who are this extreme political violent group and then you also had that were nationalistic. Then you had Matthew and some of you know Matthew enough to know that he was an IRS guy. He was a tax collector, which means that he would have been at the extreme political spectrum, other end of the spectrum, from the Sakari. So you had these individuals who were extreme in their political views that had come together. In Judas's case, he betrays and can't handle it. But in Simon's case and Matthew, they put their allegiances to Christ before anything else. And now it transforms their life, but it transforms the world. Paul speaks to the same issue of the significance of being zealous for something, 
but not fully understanding the implications of that zealousness. And in Romans chapter 10, he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them, and he's one of them, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They're doing it without understanding. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness. We're to be careful how far we go in trying to claim God is in this political spectrum or that political spectrum. He talks about their zealousness. In Galatians chapter 1, he talks about himself. He says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely or how zealously I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. And so you have these individuals, two zealots, one tax collector. One's the ultimate source of betrayal, the other one somehow takes whatever his opinions are and he submits them to Christ and is able to work alongside Matthew who also changes his allegiances and comes alongside Christ. And so here we are, having finished with that, flags and tables, we're now here to talk about the rendering time and treasure. And if we go to the coin that Jesus lifted up and, and showed I want to take you to another coin here today in the same way, because while that represented that which was supposed to be given to Caesar, there's another coin that is rendered differently. And it's interesting because it's in the same passage of Scripture. So when Jesus is having this experience in Mark chapter 12, where he's engaging the, the, the people about the tax issue, it's on the temple grounds, and he's teaching them. And he goes on in the chapter of Mark, chapter 12, if you read it, that, that he continues on in there and shares several parables and, and several different things and teachings. And then near the back end of that chapter, it says this in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put in the temple ground area and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, large amounts of stuff they threw in. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents, calling his disciples to him. So he's sitting by himself, calls them over to him, says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything all she had to live on. So in the same chapter, he's dealing with taxes and all the issues that are part of that. Now he's coming along and he's dealing with a separate issue, which has to do with this woman. Same temple grounds, all that's involved. And what they would have done is, first of all, catch the imagery of this. Jesus plants himself where he can watch who's putting what into the offering. So imagine if the ushers had been going out here today, and I'm just kind of walking along. Okay. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Imagine that. That, that's, that, you know, we'd sit here and go, that's so unspiritual. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and that's not how we operate in this church. In fact, there's only one time in this church's history in the 50 years, and I've been involved for a significant portion of that time, that we've ever put a, a direct plea for money. And it was, I think, 2008, if I remember right. The economy had crashed at that point in time. We were coming into the December time. We knew we weren't going to make budget. It looked like if things stayed the same. And so we just offered a thought. It was three minutes, maybe four on a Sunday morning, just like this. And we just said, look it, here's our status. Here's our numbers. Whatever you can feel that God can move upon your heart to do, please do. It was as short and as simple as that. And this congregation gave twice as much as was necessary to see the year out over the next period of weeks after that. That's it. We do not have the crisis of the week. 
We don't bring to you the screaming child who will die and go to hell unless you give. Uh, we don't do any of those hard pushes or anything of that nature. At the same time, one of the things that we need to realize is that there are more than 2,350 verses in the Bible dealing with money and possessions. Why? Because in the same way, whether it's taxes or giving into the treasury, it says something about us. It says who we are aligned with, who our allegiances and loyalties belong to, what our priorities are. And so Jesus is sitting here and he plants himself after this discussion on what belongs to Caesar and God and to watch to see who's giving to God now. We've talked about the taxes. He's like, who's giving to God? And they would have had these huge like trumpet brass items that would have sat there. And they were brass for a purpose because people had no paper currency. It was all coins. So the wealthy people would come along and they would drop in their coins and it would sound loud, much louder than that. Okay, a lot louder than that even. It would have echoed through the entire courtyard. And so when someone gave something a lot and it went like that, it would have echoed loudly over everywhere. And that was the idea. Oh, you're looking at me? Oh, excuse me, I was just dropping in my offering. I think personally they got a lot of small coins probably actually, you know. And so when this, this um, woman comes along and she has what are literally basically two copper coins, in fact, it is literally the smallest denominational coin that's ever been issued by a government. And it would have been issued uh, probably even 100 years before uh, this time period, but they were still in circulation. There were so many of them and they were so cheaply designed that um, they, saw, they saw a lot of exchange for centuries after their initial making. The, the coin looks a little bit like this, and it's referred to sometimes as the widow's mite. And you'll see on one side is that's supposed to be an anchor, and it was kind of alleging to the, the Greeks deal with Navy stuff, but also to what would have been one kingdom's uh, regaining of some coastal towns, possibly along Israel's coast there. The other side was a star that was to represent heaven. Interestingly enough. And so after all the crashing sounds of what everybody else would have offered, Jesus sees this widow coming on up, and she just that really stunned you, didn't it? You know, her two cents are dropped in. Her two coppers, her two small coins are dropped in. And he says, okay, this woman gave far more than any of the other people that are given. You see these millionaires that came along and dropped $10,000. But $10,000 out of a million ain't much. But this woman had almost nothing. She's getting by on 50 bucks a week. And so when he drops in her $10 or her two coins or whatever it is, it means everything. And the widow would have meant that she was also limited in both social status and in economic status. In those days, um, the jobs weren't available for women as they should have been and are today. Um, and without a husband to provide, she would have been extremely limited. So she's actually trusting God a lot with this. You know, I was going to do something here, and then I thought, well, it might make people feel a little too weird and push their buttons a little too far, but it would have been interesting to do. I was going to have you all reach into your wallet, pull out any denominational dollar bill you have, and just pass it to the person. No, I wasn't going to have you do that. Uh, I was just going to say, pull it out, and I was going to have you look at it. And as you look at it, I want you to read off, because we have paper currency today. Um, we also have coins, though. And um, 
But I didn't want you, somebody might pull out a dollar bill and someone might pull out a hundred dollar bill and someone might pull out a $10 million bill and we'd know you were cheating. Um, but the coins, if you see, this is a common coin uh, in the US, it's 2005, uh, Philadelphia Mint, that P in the corner there, and then Liberty, that's all us. And then do you see what's in the left corner? There's a motto that's there that started back in the Civil War period. And the motto was what? God we trust. It started back in the Civil War period and uh, um, by a minister who, who suggested it in part. Um, and it became a significant part of the propaganda of the South, of the North versus South. Because the North is going, God we trust, you know. And you pagan Southerners and slave owners and everything else like that. And then it was reaffirmed in the 50s during the Cold War because we wanted to stand out from those atheistic commies over there. And so we have In God We Trust. Interesting thing about uh, In God We Trust is there's been multiple lawsuits brought against, brought against this. And none of them succeeded. There were atheists and other uh, people of different beliefs that have said this is a you know, church and state issue. You need to get rid of this and take it out. None of those lawsuits have succeeded. You know why? The reason they haven't succeeded is because the courts are clear in their view that it's strictly a ceremonial statement, that it's not actually part of our core beliefs or actually has any meaning. It's what's referred to as ceremonial deism. No real belief, no real trust, no real identification, and therefore it's okay to have it all over our money. We could look at the, 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 the Latin coin and say, well, it belongs to Caesar because it's got his inscription and everything else like that. We could have said in ours, well, hey, you know, in God we trust. It all belongs to God, right? No, it doesn't. We don't really believe that. The whole concept of, of uh, tithes and the giving of those things it goes back to Genesis, actually, when the earlier there's offerings that are offered by Cain and Abel. Starts a fight. Um, Noah, after the flood. But the real issuing of a tithe, you'll find in Genesis chapter 4, Abraham has a nephew Lot. He's living with in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah fights with some other kings. They lose, and a lot of people and, and goods are taken away. When Abraham hears that, he gathers a little bit of his guys together. They go recover. It says in Genesis chapter 14, verse 16, he recovered, Abraham, all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and other people, all this other stuff. After Abraham returned from defeating these guys, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. So Sodom king is coming out to talk to Abraham about all the recovery that he's gotten. And then there's also a guy named Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem. Salem is later going to be uh, taken by another group of people, the Jerus, and it's going to be called Jerusalem, okay? But right now it's just called Salem. So out of what's going to be in the future Jerusalem is this character Melchizedek, very interesting character. He has no beginning or ending that we can find. He's unique because he's both a priest and a king of this city, and always those were separated. You don't see because they're too strong politically. Priests, kings, uh, um, military, uh, but you don't have these combined. But he's a priest king, and so he's usually referenced as a type of Christ. So Melchizedek, king of what's going to be in the future, Jerusalem comes out, and the king from Sodom comes out, and Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, and um, he's a priest of the God Most High, specifically the priest of God, not just a, a pagan priest. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram, notice the statement, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Notice the formula. 
by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he had achieved in that victory. He gives a tithe or a 10% of everything he gives to Melchizedek to honor God, to identify with Melchizedek, to identify with God. Then the king of Sodom sitting here going, hey, I got even a better deal for you. He says, look it, just give me the people. They'll generate goods for me again. And keep all the goods, all the cash for yourself. You know, I'm, I'm going to be one up. You don't have to give me 10%. I'm, you, I'm giving you the whole deal. And the king of Sodom says this to him. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, catch the line, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. He repeats Melchizedek's formula. That I'll accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, that you will never be able to say that you made me rich. He chooses starkly in that moment to identify with God and his work and not to identify with Sodom and his. Even though he has every right to at that point in time. This is the first notice of the tithe and you see it spoken throughout scripture. In Exodus when they were establishing the temple of worship or the tent of worship in the Exodus when they were, uh, had left uh, uh, Egypt. Um, Moses says, hey, if we're going to establish this, we should do it right, and we're going to need some cash to do this. And everyone who was willing and whose heart were moved, it says, whose heart moved them, came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the sacred garments. Everyone's heart was moved. There was no dictate. There was no um, coercion. Um, back in 2004, we did the expansion and renovation of, of this ancient property. Okay. And, uh, and it was going to cost something. And so we talked about it for a bit. Um, the leadership first, the elders and, and the pastors, we first made our own financial commitments. In the case of my family, it was my wife who was, uh, has been a project manager at General Motors. She was working at EDS at that time as an IT uh, person. But she was going part-time because of the kids, but it was still a significant sum in the tens of thousands of dollars per year that she was making. And um, we committed her salary for three years to the task. This is something that we practice. Others committed to that. And I still remember when the first figure was reached that we needed to do it, the emotion behind that, it wasn't crazy celebratory. It was like, wow, we're going to be entrusted with this. But we took those steps, and it was something that freely was done and given and has allowed us to continue on. Honestly, if we hadn't done that back in 2004, we'd probably be irrelevant in many regards as far as just resources. In 1 Timothy 6.17, he says this, For the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And then a passage in 2 Corinthians that's been extremely misunderstood and misapplied in this country, and unfortunately exported. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This line's great. Each of you, all of it's great because it's scripture, okay? Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Never under compulsion, never under manipulation. There's no situation that ever, ever provides cover for a spiritual leader or anyone else to, to achieve those things by those means. For God loves a cheerful giver. He's able to bless you abundantly, so in all things, having all you need. Now here's the deal. The scripture in verse 6 and verse 8 particularly have been used to foster a concept called the prosperity gospel. In this country there are churches where thousands of people attend, tens of thousands of people attend to hear this message. You give to the church and you're going to get multiple fold back. 
The more you give, the more you get. And you should never be unhealthy or sick. God wants you to be healthy and bright and blessed and financially wealthy. And this message takes off across this country and it's uniquely American. It doesn't work in other parts of the world. Except as a Ponzi scheme, basically. Now where does this come from? A complete twisting of Scripture. Are we blessed by giving to God? Yes. But that doesn't always return itself in a financial fashion. There's certain good discipline to how we handle ourselves physically, and we do find that most people who are millionaires give away a portion, whether they're Christians or not, have given away a portion over time. It's part of their discipline. So there are principles involved. But you are never going to hear in this church, give this money now, and you will get ten times back cash in your hand. That is a lie, and it is a misrepresentation, and it's heresy. Instead, what it's talking about, though, is to give freely, openly. Why? Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, is where your heart is also. It shows our allegiances, our linkages, identifications. In Matthew chapter 23, 23, he talks about the teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you give a tenth or a tithe of, of everything, down to the detail of your spices, 10% of our mint, 10% of our dill, 10% of our cash. It's, it's all worked out. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter tithe but without neglecting the former. In other words, tithing, getting our financial house in order is obedience 101. Then we go into the deeper things. Justice, mercy, how we engage others, how we love one another. These are the baselines. So, I want to just tell you quickly and briefly, for those of you who have been faithful in this season of time, part of what you have achieved and we've achieved together. First of all, I found out just this past week, I think it was Thursday or Friday I was told, we actually made budget last year. That's always nice. Sometimes we take this nonprofit thing way too seriously. <laughs> Wasn't by much, but we made budget. That's cool. We had a parking lot that needed to be repaired because it was tearing apart, and so that was able to be repaired. We had two vans that we bought back in the 1900s. <laughs> Okay. Isn't that weird to even say that? You just feel like you're talking about, oh, the 19, like the age of like the medieval days, you know? It's like, wasn't that long ago? But, but yeah, it was long ago, actually 20, 25 years ago. We've beaten those things to death. We brought, got, were able to purchase two new vans. We didn't come to you with the van of the week deal. We were just able to purchase those. They're slightly used, a year old or so I think it was. Great deals that we got on both. But our children are going to be a lot safer and all others who drive and use those things and our missions trips will be more effective because of it. We had uh, in the atrium certain structures with drapes and plastic and everything else that were put in 14 years ago, temporarily 14 years ago, temporarily 14 years ago to block out light and to provide a certain thing. Those were all taken down. We were finally able to put some permanent structure, the beginning of a permanent structure, that uh, allows for a better usage of the area. RZIM, one of those top apologetics organizations, engaging people of faith and, and intellect around the world. And we are a major partner with them and are supporting financially. We engage with them. Um, uh, they are talking to the leaders of other countries, to students around the world. Powerful impact for the gospel. Messenger Fellowship, an organization we've been part of for the last 35 years with churches throughout North America uh, and Europe. Uh, Liberty Church 
This is a church that, that um, has done Summerfest. I don't know how many of you have been involved in that, but we've supported them. They, it's a thing they do in Warren um, to, for the disadvantaged, and they've been to like a thousand every time or so they do this, and they've been holding it for a number of years for summer. We've come down as a church to assist them in their agenda in doing this because we agree with that agenda. Well, it turns out they've maxed out their location. They're relocating. They had a building program in place. They came to our trustees and said, hey, here's some bonds. There'll be some interest. Would you like to do that? They referred, looked at it. We said, no, it doesn't really fit with us. We're not going to do anything and, and get interest. And I tell you what, though, we would like to make a gift to the church. And so you as a church, a gifted Liberty uh, um, Church, a significant sum of money in their building program that came in at a perfect timing for them to have cash to complete their transition. The pastor sent me a note a letter. And he said, I cannot believe, he said, that another church would actually enable um, a church to continue building a program um, within their city in Sterling Heights, to which I called him immediately. I said, wait a minute, you're coming into Sterling Heights? (laughs) We didn't know that. That was not made clear to us. No, we knew that. But we also worked with them for years. We know that they are people whose hearts are after the gospel. And as such, they're our brothers. There are some churches we do not partner with because they have a track record of not being trustworthy, either on the, on the doctrine or in their financial matters. So we don't partner with them. But there are a number that we do, and Liberty is one of those. We managed to uh, rescue Detroit Bible Institute. When the church that we were partnering with was unable and unwilling to continue on with that, we now drew that over. But we now have partners with Fellowship Chapel, Bethesda, uh, Hope Baptist, other churches that are adding to that partnership now that we partner with. There are churches even right around the corner to see that Christian education and understanding of the Bible is available to anybody that wants it for a very, very low cost. And the quality of education is incredible for what's being received for that. And that's something that as a church we are continuing to be a major source of and supportive on that. There are things I can't talk about here right now. Some of them are very personal to individuals and situations. But we've also been involved in Guatemala ongoing for years, feeding children in Guatemala. Construction this last year in Guatemala. We had construction and we've been doing uh, medical work in Costa Rica when fires came and swept through the barrios and wiped out and made homeless a bunch of people who only live in tin shacks anyway. Our people went in. And we supplied financing for that. And we have teams going in this summer for medical and for uh, um, construction work and other things are going to be done in there as well. Turning Point Church, a church that was established in Florida just three years ago, one of our former staff members, uh, Steve and Kisa Gill, our children's pastor, um, both uh, uh, Spanish and English. We've been supporting them for this period of time. The Dady family, who gave up everything to go to Dakar for the last eight years, our last team member to come home, they gave up everything, vehicles, home, the whole deal, and they came back. And we managed to raise enough money to give them almost a brand new vehicle. And when they, they got that from us, they were breaking down in tears that there would be that kind of support and encouragement from this congregation. We had only one thing last year that I can recall that was a campaign of any kind. We, we said inside out coming up to Christmas. And the inside part was to, to gather money to, to minister to those who have, whether it's a, a bill that needed being paid or a shortfall that happened or gifts for Christmas, something that was needed by people that we knew in the congregation. The outside part had been selected as Abigail, uh, Abigail's place, a place that provides up to two years of education, lodging, provisioning for a, a woman as she gives birth to their child because they've chosen to not abort that child but to have that child. And it's our stance for life and putting our money where our mouth is that we support this stuff. And so we were able to pass a check. We contacted them this week. We got a $13,000 check for you. And they said, when we'll come over right away. (laughs) 
I said, well, we'll, we'll get with you, no problem at all. So we made provision on that. We have supported SOAR, a reading program, because it's been shown that any kid who's not reading by a third grade level at third grade, that it's about a 90% chance they're going to be incarcerated or they're going to end up uh, um, on the street. And so we've now supported this financially, but I was just told we have 25 of our people that have chosen to become tutors to students in the third grade, second and third grade level in the school that feeds into Osborne, the school we've been working with for the last number of years. That to me is incredibly cool. I can go on. There's a whole list of things. These are all things that you and those of you who have been faithful have provided. We won't go into even just the marriages that have been restored. To this being a safe place for children. For a thousand other things. The, the fact that we're one of the few churches that actually has a ministry uh, to, to, to parents that have children with disabilities so that the children provide for so a parent can be in here uh, um, and part of this. There's so many other things I can go into. These are all things that were provided not by manipulation, not by hard sales, but by individuals who were taught and understood the basic principle of, of tithing, that was taught and understood the basic idea of placing our treasure in a place where God can see the blessing and ministry of that to our identity and our involvement. What it comes down to at the core, though, is right. Whether we believe this or not any longer, the, the fact of the matter is whether you trust God about this or not whether you trust that not only will those things be used for his purposes, but, but that he truly is the God that he says he is. If you don't have a trust, if you don't have the relationship, then no, you shouldn't participate in these type of things. It would be foolish. You don't buy anything by it. It's not like you're going to get your salvation because you suddenly gave 500, 1,000, or two coins to the church. It doesn't work that way, guys. But if you're in a relationship, if you truly trust and identify and associate. When my wife and I got married, I had a car, she did not. I had no debt, she had student debt. Then we got married and now I have debt and I have no car. <laughs> it was never a question mark as to whether we should blend our finances together and become one on it. That was part of the arrangement. Tell you a side note for you guys that they're, they're a little whacked on this idea a bit. My wife out-earned me the first 10 years of our marriage. And after that, only because she went part-time. I benefited greatly from those things. But the point is that we came together, those things were guarded in. That's what you do when you're in a relationship. That's what you do when you trust and when you have that. The term render means to give back. The term surrender means to give back yourself. Now as we wrap this up here this morning, let me um, highlight just one or two thoughts for you real quickly. I played what I played for a specific reason. Really for several reasons. One, first and foremost, there's no way on the planet I'm staying up with Josh and Tal. Okay, that's just it. They are rich in what they bring to it. But I specifically played those two notes at the end. Now, the, let's be honest. Those two notes made the whole thing, right? Okay. I mean, don't you find that to be the case? Okay. So, first of all, it brought a smile to you. <laughs> My contribution. You guys might have been sitting around, oh, this is cool. And it's like, oh, this is great. Because those two little notes. So it brought a smile to you. That was part of the purpose. 
Those two notes are, are something called harmonics. They're my favorite of, of playing. There's only a few places on the guitar that has it. And if you do them right, you have to release it at the same time you hit it. You can't just hold it, it goes flat, but to hit it just right. But when you hit that right, it's considered a harmonic. It's considered something that strips away all the exterior of the, of the chord to the note that it's known as being very pure. And so it's this very pure, piercing note. All the wealthy came that day, and after a whole discussion about taxation and who belongs to what and what belongs to whom, Jesus sits down and he watches people putting money in, and he hears the loud trumpeting sounds of the cash dropped, and everyone else is going, whoa, or, whoa, or, whoa. And this widow comes, this person whose total dependency is upon God. They drop in their two cents, two coins. And I will offer to you, from what we read in Scripture, that those two coins as they dropped in offered a, a two piercing notes of utter purity that elevated itself all the way to heaven. I was curious about this because I've heard this phrase before and I thought, I wonder if it's related and sure enough it appears to be. If you look at the term that's an American term about uh, our two cents, you know how we do that. You know, it's just it's just my two cents worth. Just before we say an opinion that nobody really wants. <laughs> but one of the phrases says that it's meant to be actually a humble and polite way of offering an opinion. And so I'm underplaying. I'm just saying it was just it's just my two cents worth. But here's my view. And a lot of the historical uh, 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 definitions say that it goes back that the initial thing is the widow's mite. These two coins is where the phrase comes from. There's other phrases that link to it they think further on, but the original rooting they think is on. So here's the thing. This woman offers her two cents worth, her opinion, and her opinion in that moment of time. And every time we give to whatever we give to, whether it's a political party or the church or our grandchildren, we're offering an opinion. We're offering a statement of value or worth or allegiance or identification. Every time that you release or commit your two cents, your resources to a ministry, you're offering your two cents worth, you're offering your humble and polite opinion that this work should continue, that lives should continue to be changed, children should continue to read, that lives continue to be touched and transformed. But it goes deeper than that. You're offering in that moment of time your two cents worth, your two notes that ring with utter clarity that this thing, whatever it is that you have given to, has value, has meaning. Never give because someone manipulates you. Never give because some spiritual promise of, of riches and stuff like that. That's crazy. Jesus died poor. Every single apostle died, as far as we can see, without even a great 401k. 
Where do you get that from? Will God bless you? I believe he will. And sometimes that is financial. I think as we order our finances, he does bless. But sometimes it's in different means and ways. Ways that we don't understand or comprehend. But don't let anybody manipulate you that way. Years ago, our former youth pastor, Kent Chevalier, he was a worship leader as well, and he wrote a song that I've asked the team to play this morning. It's had a lot of meaning to us, even though Kent's been gone for years now, and Kent's now a pastor in Pittsburgh, and he also just this last year became the, uh, the uh, chaplain for the Pittsburgh Steelers, which all Detroit Lions fans find disgusting, but for him it's a lifelong dream. And when Kent was trying to sort out what his life was going to look like beyond Rock Point, then God was calling him to, and he, as he shared that with us, and we prayed, and we would process that together. This is a song that he wrote, and as this is being played for you today, I, I hope that in the same way as where Kent was at the point of saying, God, what do you want of me? That you not look to a man or a woman about that, but you'd look to God and just say, God, what do you want of me? So Lord, I just pray this morning that you speak to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would confirm and guide the understanding of your word today in Jesus' name. Just to be completely fair, uh, my wife's debt was, I think it was $3,000, and it was all educational debt. I don't want to imply that she was running up some credit cards or anything. Though my car was a 72 Grand Torino, so another issue. Um, in the bulletin, it lists that next week uh, there'll be a new series entitled Title Here. We're continuing on with this one. So. In God we trust. It is something that we believe and we organize our lives around or is it ceremonial deism? You decide. But if it's something that's real and genuine, take a look at how you're structuring your finances, not just in regards to how you're giving to God's work in the church, but in general, what are you spending your money on? What are you committing something to or encouraging or, or, or funding is something God would approve of. Father, I thank you for your grace and your provision. You have been incredibly gracious to us as a people and as a church. I thank you for all the work that's been done in this past year and what we have to look forward to in this year of 2020, this new decade of a new century. I pray, Lord, you'd help those who are struggling financially and that you'd guide them, Lord, into financial wisdom and grace so that they'd be able to contribute and engage, guide them in those things and provide, Father. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.